So, when was your last checkup? Oh no, not you. Although that's important too, but when was your last vehicle checkup? When it comes to service, nobody knows your Chevy better than your local Chevy dealer. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule an appointment today. So this is a guy who lives high on the hog and he has this Tammany Hall style attitude to power. And um, it is, it's the Chicago way. Absolutely. Look, the, the, the Chicago way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago way. The Chicago way. That's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand with pen and paper in his hand, defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river, Castle. You know how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Well, a lot has happened in the past several days, and uh, it's kind of confusing, but let's deal with what isn't confusing. You remember the 51 intelligence officers, the senior high-ranking masters of the deep state, who signed that letter, the Joe Biden campaign letter, saying uh, saying that the 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 Hunter Biden laptop was nothing but Russian disinformation, and MSNBC and a lot of the other chattering chimps of the media ran with it, and they clapped their hands or symbols like as they they want to do. But you know what? We've got a guy today. The one guy who did not sign that letter, the fellow who did not say it was Russian disinformation. And how do I know this? He's my brother, Nicholas Cass, longtime State Department official, diplomat, and former Central Intelligence officer and analyst. Nick, welcome to the Chicago Way. Hi, John. Hi, Jeff. Good to be back, guys. How are you out there? Good, great to have you, Nick. How are things in uh, Romania? Right? Yeah, little little cold and snowy. I uh, saw that there were people putting up their dib spots, so there is dibs. Here oh in man! Romania. Although they don't have a um, uh, best I can tell yet, they don't have a, a neat team term for it. So they just say, you know, it's the thing that when you dig out your <laughs> your spot, you get to keep it, and you put things in front of it. So they're so saying the dib, dibs one. is international. Wait a second! What kind yeah. of things, like blue, blue, blue uh, virgins, like they do in Chicago? No, I think it's more just like whatever random uh, stuff you can find, uh, trashy stuff that just it's like does the tables yeah. and chairs and things. Yeah, and, and broken boxes or whatever. You know, nothing, uh, nothing, nothing that could be valuable. They like to hang on to that stuff. So, and then if you if you're from outside. And you see a spot. The polite, the the proper etiquette is to leave your uh, phone number on your um, uh, dashboard so that someone can call you and tell them, "Hey, you're in my spot," and then you're supposed to come and move. So they do have some civilized rules here about it. I love it. We got to figure out how we can translate this, John. You got to be in in control of this thing. You're the the uh, judge, Judge Dibbs himself. Yeah, I know. I'm Judge Dibbs, even despite all the 
Marxist uh, right. imposters. I think there. the I think the you thing know, is there has to be, uh, and if I may, there has to be regional yes, regional please. variations in any dibs. So, for example, when uh, my friend was telling me that you know they have dibs, and I said, "Well, what if someone parks in your space? What do you do?" And they said, "Basically, there's nothing you can do." And I said, "What? You mean people won't let the air out of their tires or anything like that?" <laughs> she said, "No, right, not at all." So yeah. I think there. Are, what about freeze their yeah, car? Yeah. What about run a hose on top that'd of their be, car until it turns into a block that'd of be, ice? That'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. Hey, hey, nature. Hey, hey, global warming's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to, Nick. You have to get us photographs and send them to the Chicago way, and we'll put I them. Well, I think unfortunately, it seems like it's melted pretty quickly today. It was that icy snow that was on every tree, transferred transformed the whole place into a winter wonderland, but now it's all God and it's mud. So, you know, we'll see want, another one. No, so, I really, I, yeah. I don't want to have to go and find some random uh, Romanian who will come up to me and say, no, I am driver. I'm driver. <laughs> and I want, you know, I don't, I don't want that guy. I want you to find the picture. Yeah. But you should ask your, um, with your phone, yeah, you should, add, I'll do my best, but you should ask your uh, Romanian and Bulgarian listeners. Maybe there are people in, there you in Bulgaria who do the same thing and ask them to see if they have, uh, if they have any good stories about it, you know. I'd love to hear from anyone in Romania, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, anywhere in the Baltic, uh, the civilized Baltic the lands, to tell me about dips. Okay. That's some foreign policy. Now, can we, can we get yeah, to the geopolitical issues? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. All right. So, so Nick, uh, I'm looking at uh, Margot Cleveland, who's uh, one of my favorite writers. She's writing. Uh, for the uh, Federalist, she has, and she says, there's only one explanation for Hunter Biden's simple indictment taking so long. 2020 election interference. Her argument is that this is since, uh, you know, the de- since the deep state came up with its uh, brilliant uh, or not so brilliant attempt to derail the Hunter Biden investigation. Here's how it starts. The charges against the charges are so straightforward and stale. It is incomprehensible. They were not brought against Hunter Biden in 20 or uh, 2019 or early 2020. But of course, but of course we know why they weren't. Well, it it sounds as though um, they also, allowed a lot of things uh, to fall uh, by the wayside on uh, this indictment. I was reading something, I think Molly Hemingway or somebody pointed out that there's, and maybe it was Margot Cleveland, I don't know, but it was about uh, pointing out how there was nothing in here in the <laughs> indictment about uh, FARA violations and all those sorts of things yes. that one would expect would be part and parcel with that, because that's the thing that obviously potentially implicates um, uh, others beyond the business, the scope of business, the normal uh, commercial business. And so uh, clearly there's a, an example of, uh, you know, they're s- sort of stuck with having to indict him, but they're still trying to protect the boss. The sad thing is they have so politicized it that it's almost impossible, I think, for anybody to take at face value anything that uh, comes up these days. And um, it's just the damage has been so, so dramatic in these idiots um, don't really understand what they've done, or maybe they just don't care. 
but the damage has been incalculable and uh it's really really a sad thing sad thing to see but uh you're seeing it on so many different fronts yeah so what damage has been done well i mean if put it this way if you're talking about um prosecutorial uh inaction or omission because of uh, in in order to favor a particular candidate or the you know a f- particular party, then of course you create the impression that justice is one sided, and that comes again. It's bad enough if it looks like that just on, in the isolation, but this comes against <clears throat> the backdrop not only of this and the failures of the Hunter Biden thing in 2020 and all through, but you know the indictment, the impeachment of uh, <clears throat> the President Trump on two counts on two impeachments. The indictment of uh, President Trump, and of course, the deep state operation against uh, against President Trump when he was in office, the effort to try to claim that he was a Russian spy, etc. I mean, these are all part of the thing that create lack of trust in the system. So I think it's uh, the damage has been done, and that's very very foreboding to me. Now you worked for years um, in CIA and then in uh, Department of State. <clears throat> yeah. People should know that you you didn't come there with a silver spoon Yaley degree. You didn't show up as Bill Buckley's nephew. Right. You're just a son of a Greek butcher like me. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking of all the young people that have spent their lives in CIA and State Department, young analysts. How does this affect them? How does this affect the culture when they see uh, the thing falling apart? Do they make decisions like political decisions that wouldn't have been made years ago? Like, what team am I on? How do I go to win? Well, I think. I mean, I think I can I can comment about this in the context of a broad swath of the of the federal bureaucracy generally, because I think the same what you're seeing in any particular bureaucracy is the same as others it's the same as in media it's the same as in academia okay and there will be two different classes of people there will be the kinds of people who will try to serve and do their job and put their heads down and work and are not inclined to rebellion which is what you want you don't want a um uh civil service or government uh, bureaucracy to feel entitled to turn the kettle drums over and uh, march into the Atmedan in and rebelled against the Sultan. You don't want that. Okay. You want them to, to uh, restrain themselves because they're there at the serve, at the uh, behest or at the leave of the uh, duly elected people in this country. Okay. So you don't want that as a general rule. But so you have that. You have a lot of, I think, professionals who are just trying to do their job. You have other people who are careerists who sense what's important and what's uh, driving the possibility for promotion. And that includes people who are. Um, you know, uh, glomming onto uh, DEI stuff or woke stuff because they think of that as a ticket to uh, advancement and right. all of that. And you see that in the media, you see that in academia. And of course, all of that uh, distorts, I mean, in many ways, it it's corrupts, uh, you know, American uh, uh, discourse, it corrupts American society on a very basic level. Uh, you know, we're uh, a country of people who traditionally have tried to stand on their own feet. And now we're playing courtier games, um, you know, back in the back rooms constantly. Uh, so I think that's kind of a, a very, very sad uh, turn of events. Um, but also it uh, gets back to the thing we've talked about almost consistently for the last couple of years, which is how do you perceive reality? How do you know what you know? How do you 
understand events on the ground outside of that prism because that prism doesn't correspond to the realities that you see. And um, you're seeing, unfortunately, uh, that play out uh, in a variety of, of, of big ways, not only at home, but uh, internationally. And these things have, um, you know, these there's a feedback loop. I mean, what happens abroad now is starting to affect our own uh, perceptions of what we're doing. We're trying to cobble together world visions that satisfy domestic constituents and then apply those to foreign policy crises in ways that are completely inappropriate. And you're seeing it play out. We saw it play out, for example, uh, in Afghanistan for many, many years. You saw the failure uh, of Afghanistan and the lies that were being told right up to the very end of the pullout and how extraordinarily inept it was. I was having uh, lunch with a very uh, senior political figure here not too long ago, uh, very, very senior. And he's like, I just can't get it. I don't understand. What were you guys thinking? How could you do this? And it's it creates the impression that, correctly, that we don't know what we're doing. And then you apply that to Ukraine, where the media willfully and others willfully lied about the situation long enough to get hundreds of thousands of people uh, killed when it was clear from the beginning uh, that this was a problem. You know, I look back at our first podcast that we did back in February of uh uh, 22 before the war mm-hmm. yeah. and we we said <clears throat> uh this is not going to end the way america wants it with whatever our, our priorities are it's not going to end that way and uh that we had uh shared great concern about whether or not we would be able to execute this in any case and uh in the um what we've seen of course is that playing out exactly over time and now we're it's in free fall uh with uh potential rebellion in congress uh, to the point where, you know, they're not going to be sending the money on. And, of course, now the uh, political masters and the uh, bureaucratic masters are using extraordinarily overinflated uh, uh, rhetoric about uh, fighting the Russians directly and the Russian attack on N- U- uh, NATO. I mean, this is just absolutely dangerous and stupid. It's ludicrous. Well, speaking of stupid, I've heard that there was, you know, and I'm accused often, not by Jeff, because he knows <laughs> my others, uh, yeah. the others that well, I'm always for the Republicans. Whatever they say, I'm I'm, I'm I chatter like a fool for the Republicans. No, not. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they broke me from loving them in the first Iraq War when they destroyed right. the, the Middle East. Right, yeah. and I supported it, and yeah. never again, never again. And now, uh, what am I seeing with? stupidity from lindsey graham well of course what is going on with that you mean in terms of uh ukraine or the middle east ukraine the middle east all the babbling from from his mouth these guys and i think you know nikki haley as a candidate for president is the perfect like weather vane for that i mean she is has barely enough uh understanding of these issues to get down a few talking points and then, uh, you know, I mean, I would hate to actually sit down and, and question her more fully on this because I think it would be just because so you need a woman. But you know what? But that kind of politics, that's so 2000, you know, that's so old kid. I don't think young voters in particular care about that stuff anymore. That's right, like right. more that's like so dumb. And so what I worry about is the same disinformation, pardon my French, that the uh, NATO governments and the West media and everybody else. Uh, shoved down everyone's throats uh, for, on Ukraine, needlessly 
clouding the issue, keeping people from seeing what was going on, uh, a lot, you know, giving them free reign thereby to continue to follow a, an insane uh, policy that was actually harmful to NATO interests. And now I'll, I can happy to go into that if you'd like. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're seeing it now in the Middle East as well. And it's really a tragedy because uh, the fight, it's almost like, you know, you throw a stone in among the dra- uh, soldiers of the dragon's teeth and they start to fight each other, right? Yeah. But, and that's kind of what's going on. There are, of course, uh, uh, real um, uh, charges and uh, accurate criticisms of some of the way in which people have debated this issue and talked about this and these protests, which have uh, featured, you know, anti-Semitic language, you know, kill the Jews and this kind of thing. This coming after Hamas uh, attacked and killed 14 or 1200 people on October 7th in a horrific sort of situation. But uh, the challenge and, 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 but the challenge is trying to find the difference between what the extremes want. And in the context of the debate here in the United States and elsewhere, it seems to me that extremes on both sides want Hamas and the Palestinians to be um, identically one and the same. Uh, the, the Hamas certainly wants that. They want no uh, daylight between themselves and the perception of the um, Palestinian cause. And of course, I think the most extreme elements in the uh, government of Israel are saying the same thing. Uh, and if you look at some of the comments that people have made uh, from President Herzog uh, in October about how, uh, you know, Palestinians, uh, you know, uh, the entire nation is responsible. And, you know, the finance minister talking about uh, promoting voluntary, quote unquote, migration into regional areas. These start to and and coupling that with the absolutely horrific um, damage done to the civilian population and infrastructure in gaza you can well, get you can it's just a fact that you can get these things um, um it makes it harder and harder for people to talk about what uh the effect of this is and when what to do and so for example uh the republican congress passed a, a resolution saying that anti-zionism is uh anti-semitism and I'm sorry, but there are a lot of people who dispute that, uh, Christians and others in the Middle East who don't share that for a variety of reasons. And there are other people who uh, would analogize that to uh, the, the um, uh, you know, sort of like Zionism as a species or the kind of reflection of the same forces that led to secular Kamalism, uh, which, you know, uh, imposed a secular ideology on the Turkish state that was completely inappropriate to the realities. But the, the point is not to determine whether or not this is right or this is wrong. The, the point is to determine how people think about this and what can be done. And if we're stuck talking within the categories that are deemed um, acceptable in American political discourse, all right, then we're not going to be able to get to the get to the root of this because there is really no alternative than to try to find some daylight between what Palestinian aspirations are and what the aspirations of Hamas are. There have to be some that the, you know, Netanyahu talked about in Israel talked about wanting to de-radicalize Hamas. Okay. You can't do that if you kill 15,000 civilians. I mean, can you imagine what, uh, what those kids are, the survivors are going to do when they grow up? So it's not even a question of 
whether or not one you know, thinks this is right or thinks this is wrong. You know, in the case of the United States, of course, any kind of incitement to violence is a, cr- is a crime and should be stopped. And that people should pay the price for inciting violence. And if you're if someone's out there making or for or for trapping Jewish students in the library and pounding yeah, on the windows, anything, anything like although that. although apparently the uh, Ivy League presidents did oh not gosh. find any any concern. <laughs> they said it's all about context. Well, they should have they should have said real simply, like some of them have, right. have since tried to correct correct this. Right. That anybody who talks about. Uh, wanting to commit a genocide against innocent people or against any people for that matter. In, in general, genocide yeah. is bad. Just that's to the, yeah, that's that's an incitement to violence, and we've had enough of that. We can't allow that stuff to happen. At the same time, and we just went through it with Ukraine, you cannot be in a situation where if you question what the government is doing, you are then deemed to be a Putin sympathizer, right? We went through seven years of that crap. Right. Yeah, because uh, right. anytime Jeff and I would say something like, right. do we really want to go, to, I mean, are we really trying to go to war with Putin? Uh, we'd get hit with, Cass, Carlin, you're a bunch of Putin lovers. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, Putin's a bad dude yeah. in my book. Right. right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And and the prob- But the problem is, if you're not allowed to think and talk in terms other than the pre-chosen uh, delineation of acceptable discourse uh, that's being enforced upon us on any issue, then you're doomed to failure. Well, part, part of that, I think, Nick, is yeah. that uh, the universities that we're talking about right. have taken millions upon millions, tens of millions of dollars, maybe billions, from the Middle East, from Qatar, from other places, yeah. the Saudis, to, to establish their Middle Eastern um, right. centers for study. And in, in the old days when it was a bunch of Tweedy English aristocrats, they were denounced as Arabists, and uh, they had yeah. to uh, separate themselves. But now, apparently, it's okay for Qatar and Saudis to dictate the uh, academic pursuits of, of elite universities. Well, I mean, it's it's... Anytime you have any kind of institution like that, you're gonna you gotta see where the money comes from, and that's right. what that's what basically will drive uh, so much of the opinion. You can find outliers, I think, but whether it's an academic institution, a think tank, whether uh, brought to you by Raytheon, you know, anything. Okay, I mean, let's are, get to it. Let's get to are, it. Right. Nikki, and so, but Nikki what Haley, what Nikki right. Haley is one of the chief offenders, in my view. Right. Uh, you uh, things you can't say or think about. Right. Um, and the cheapest one is if you criticize me, I'm a woman, and so you hate women. Right. But uh, which is ludicrous, and I I don't think it's going to work. But and she's think- a neocon who's part of that whole George Bush neocon movement, Dick Cheney, all that stuff. Right. Exactly. And I don't so- like that. I'm right. sorry, I don't. Right. And so what they're what they're trying to do is, I think, that a lot of money is coming into her, both from the Democratic donors and Republicans, because they want to return the Republican Party to, uh, you know, the party of Bill Salini in Illinois. Yeah, they want to turn it. That's exactly what they want. <laughs> they want the Washington generals. OK, they don't want they don't want it to compete with the Harlem Globetrotters. They want it to like, where's my cut? You know, did I sing? OK, you know, <laughs> just going to we're going to all work at the same uh, ends which don't reflect the realities. 
And so as a matter of principle, if you start to restrict people's ability to think, then we're going to run into big, big trouble. And that applies to the way in which the neoconservatives and the liberal internationalists have talked about the about the um, uh, international rules-based order and the things we right. should do, for example. Okay, for example, right now, uh, the unfortunate uh, challenge for Israel is how do you smash Hamas without doing damage to your long-term strategic equities? And as you know, we talked about that. I wrote about that for your website and uh, in an article called Heading uh, to Disaster. Well, if right. you look back on that now, that was written in late October, uh, I think it was published in early November. Here we are in uh, toward mid-December. Uh, and I think it's it's become that disaster. It's become such a disaster that uh, the uh, strategic equities of Israel and of the United States are being permanently damaged by the, the way in which Israel is uh, going about uh, this issue. They're not doing it with op- uh, intelligence operations. They're not fighting house to house. They're blowing down buildings, and they, by their own admission, they're saying we're looking for ma- maximum uh, destruction. It's got so bad that even the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who is otherwise uh, spouting nonsense about Ukraine, is saying that, you know, obviously in the case of of Gaza, the Israelis are, st- are staring at a strategic defeat because if they can't separate the Gaza population from the uh, perpetrators of the of the attack, they're going to destroy their long-term prospects. But it's not just Israel. It's the United States. And so I asked the other day, I said, okay, what are we doing about it? How are we affecting this policy? Now, it could be that the United States is quietly uh, having demonstrated its uh, support for Israel. And I think Biden has demonstrated that very, very strongly, that he was willing to uh, support Israel through thick and thin. So I don't think that that's an issue. I think that's an issue for the Republicans who are now trying to out, out, um, outpace that in a way that leads them to do things like the ill-advised uh, congressional resolution that I talked about. But, um, and I know Tony Blinken, uh, uh, Secretary of State, who you know I worked very closely with for a couple of years at the White House many years ago, the Clinton administration. Uh, he said something about how, you know, uh, the actual activities of Israel um, belied, uh, seem to contradict their intent, meaning that they have, they understand the need to uh, separate, distinguish between the population and Hamas, uh, and they intend to do so, he, sa- he suggested, but that the activities that they've been conducting sort of fly in the face of that. I mean, this is gentle, this is gentle um, language, but is essentially uh, diplomatic screaming, grabbing the lapels and screaming in the face, Okay. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because if all you do is say this and you continue to go off the cliff, you're still going off the cliff. And right now, throughout the Middle East, you know, it's undercutting our ability to, uh, to be seen as being able to manage the situation um, on the Arab street in particular, but also in a place like Turkey, where Erdogan's saying, you know, we could have a peaceful region if it weren't for the United States. Why is he saying that? Well, it's based that on precisely the dynamic I talked about in the article, right. which is... Uh, they look at the United States as the primary source of instability in the region and as a destructive force. Everyone does that now. This has uh, only underscored that. And when you think about from the perspective of what we're fighting in Ukraine for, we're supposed to be fighting in Ukraine 
for the internet, the survivability of the international rules-based rational liberal order, whatever, right? Uh-huh. Well, you know, in order to pursue that, we've done a lot of things like destroy Serbia when Milosevic with ethnic cleansing. We've mm-hmm. we've done a, a whole host of things where we've where we've uh, clearly made our we bombed the serbian orthodox in their churches on yeah. easter sunday yeah and clinton pretended right. it was like no big deal it's just you know it was right. a big deal yeah. so my point is if you're doing this okay in some cases and you're and not in others what are the criteria by which you're making these distinctions and the sad fact the sad fact of international perception here is that you know what what the Israelis doing Israel is doing with respect to innocent civilians in Gaza is horrific. And now a lot of people are throwing around words. I'm not going to you know uh, define this as a legal term. I can only say this that you know I spent as you know I spent a lot of time in Kurdistan uh, right. back in uh, you know still to this day, but also including uh, back in the early 90s, and that was at a time when people were uh, trying to focus on the what happened to the Kurds under Saddam. Uh, the Anfal campaign, which, you know, where they gassed them and did all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, it was very, very difficult uh, to prove, um, you know, the sort of, I mean, the Kurds would say this is a genocide, right? But they were, it was very, very difficult to prove genocide, even with all the documents that had been discovered, et cetera, over the course Why? of time, right? Because Why? it's a very difficult and high standard to prove this kind of intent. And that's a good thing. Because with the expansion of the term de- genocide, beyond what one would think, which is like the extermination of a people, now it's sort of become a little bit more of a broad term that can be applied to horrific events uh, generally, but perhaps don't rise to the level of what we saw in uh, Nazi Germany, right? So uh, the intent uh, element is of a pretty high standard. Now, a couple of guys in Kurdistan did get convicted. Chemical Ali, you remember him? Right, uh, right, and those guys, and they got charged with these kind of crimes, etc. So the Kurds, for their uh, their perspective, the Kurds of northern Iraq say we had there was a genocide. The Hague said that genocide, as I understand it, that uh, the genocide uh, was not uh, uh, there was not sufficient evidence to 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 do that. Now I, I may be wrong, so forgive me. But what my only point here in in talking about this is to demonstrate the the difficulties of these language of, of the use of this language i won't use that language i don't i don't want to use that language right. and the reason why is i'm not trying to avoid it because i think you know yes or no blah 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 but because it doesn't really matter what i think what i think is that there are a lot of civilians being killed and that as lloyd austin the secretary of defense said this is presenting a strategic defeat for israel and the united states and in the rest of the middle east regardless of what we think they think it's the worst possible thing, okay? And that is a political reality that we now have to deal with. If we talk to these folks or these people who believe this and we say, well, you know, we made a careful legal determination distinguishing between, uh, you know, combatants and um, uh, innocent civilians and, yes, this happened and innocent civilians were killed, but it wasn't because we were targeting blah, 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 okay? Which is what you do uh, in uh, any state, in the United States in particular, when you're engaging in this kind of activity, because you have to have some sort of legal basis upon which to justify your activity, right? Mm. So, you know, we have these debates uh, and this sort of analysis uh, any country does about, 
you know, what they're doing, what they're targeting is, who they're hitting, what's the risk of collateral damage, et cetera, et cetera. All of that can be done uh, to protect uh, the institutions of the state from any legal recourse. And that's uh, an important thing. People have to have that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't matter. It's, again, deserves got nothing to do with it. It's, it doesn't matter in terms of what people think, whether or not you were killed as a, as a direct um, um, as a target or whether, you know, your right. family was wiped out because it was collateral damage. You think some of those right. kids out there, you know, screaming in the, in the, in the streets uh, without their families, what, how are they going to grow? How are they going to spend the less rest of their lives? What, what's their likely reaction? So if uh, the government of uh, prime minister Netanyahu was thinking about trying to de-radicalize them, um, mm-hmm. he's, he's following a policy that I, I would suspect would be exactly the opposite. And it's the same thing as we talked about last time with respect to supporting a, a Marxist-Leninist terrorist organization in the heart of a, con- yeah. a conservative Christian uh, Middle Eastern culture, right? right? Which the United States does in the PKK. So these perceptions, this is the way people think. This is the reality that we have to operate in. The damage has been done. The question is whether or not uh, the damage will continue to be done and how debilitating it will be. But I think in this respect, what we're watching in some ways is the really the end of this pretense of you know American uh, uh, leadership of the world because we see farther and see broader and have more have moral superiority and all of this kind of thing that is being completely uh, laid to waste. So, well, it was talking- it, it was done decades ago when George Bush and the Republicans helped break the Middle East, yeah. and it's never recovered. Yes, I love uh, listening to you because you always have such great insight and stuff. And one of the themes you've stuff you've talked about recently is this idea of you know we're getting to this weird ideological almost tug of war where people have to you know stake your claim and hold on tight and that's all that matters and and it's then you know distorting the worldview of what's really happening in places like Ukraine and and yeah of course Gaza. And what what's the next steps there? Because, I mean, you seem to have an idea of what, what people are going to experience because it's happened you know, before. Where do people start to turn then for information and how does that impact the, the you know, your, your domestically? Because we've got an election coming up next year and, and people are, are trying to say they know what the true worldview is. I mean, where do we where do we go to try to counter that? Well, I mean, I think you just have to be uh, uh, very alert and read everything with a skeptical eye. I think you have to look at uh, international media outside of the UK, uh, which, you know, are sure. just, I mean, they're just horrific. Um, they're, um, I think you're seeing uh, a lot of commentators, um, for example, on um, uh, YouTube and online, on Twitter, who uh, sort of bring up uh, some of these unpalatable realities. There's lots of people, increasing number of people who do that. You know, you have this reporting by Matt Taibbi and uh, Mike Schellenberger and all these other folks mm-hmm. who are, and Margot Cleveland and Julie Kelly and all these other people who are poking holes in this uh, this effort to uh, narrative control uh, that's going on with respect to all these uh, different issues. But to me, uh, and I think you have to read foreign press. You have to understand what people are saying, and you can dismiss it or not, but you have to understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I think a lack of ability to do that 
I mean, not a technological ability, although sometimes, you know, you see things are flooded and hidden and all this kind of shadow banning and all that stuff that goes on. But just in terms of the way it's presented on the surface level in the U.S. media, it almost is a discouragement to go deeper because it's the same reporting, the same way about everything else. I mean, you saw the you saw the big uh, uh, debate after the debate between uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy and uh, what's her name from CNN. I mean, it was right. clearly two different people talking in two different worlds. Right. And it was clear that the CNN media people just do not, uh, have not even con- contemplated what these things are. And it was the same stuff. It was the same problem with the uh, Russiagate uh, investigations, the same problem with this, the same problem with uh, all of these sorts of things that have been been going on. I think that the, well, the, the danger is for the United States, if we think about it, is that... A a real appreciation of what our interests lie, uh, what our interests are in any particular area of the world Mm -hmm. has to start at least with some good, solid, basic understanding of what the actual situation is on the ground. And that's the thing that people need to dig and to find. And they need to read uh, counter arguments and they need to try to see maybe this one guy is saying something smart here. He's an idiot over here. I'm sure, you know, some sure, people yeah. read my article and say the mm-hmm. same thing, sure. but, um, you know, when I, so when, for example, when I look at, um, American politics and I see all these people screaming uh, about the, uh, these demonstrations in favor of the Palestinians or these that have, uh, in some respects become anti, uh, Semitic. Okay. And, mm-hmm. uh, where people are threatening, uh, Jews and all that kind of thing. I mean, I think this is really, uh, when I when I try to read this without emotion, I look at that. I see this as a, presenting a really interesting uh, problem that's been duplicated in other areas. You know, for example, I mean, what the Bolsheviks wanted to do uh, in Russia was to build on legitimate grievances that people had, and then herd them in another direction. What the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, the Marxist-Leninist terrorist organization that the United States supports in Syria under the uh, rubric of the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces. <laughs> what what they're trying to do, of course, is to try to define Kurdishness and what it means to be a mm-hmm. Kurd in ways that promotes their own power. Here, in the middle of all this stuff, what you have is a woke industrial complex that is trying to take this legitimate issue of the Palestinian, the plight of the Palestinians, uh, and basically uh, yoke it to their particular cause. And they're trying to do that uh, for in the in the interest of promoting power. As a matter of fact, I think one of the remedial steps taken by these idiot uh, uh, professors was mm. to, uh, to broaden their DEI program to include anti-Semitism. So they're gonna they're not gonna destroy the edifice. Their machinery is still going to go on. They're just gonna try to find ways to now incorporate this new challenge to it and subsume mm. it and swallow it. So I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to uh disappoint uh, people who are listening for others they all, often they r- report in and listen for others so i just want to say uh i don't smoke cigarettes anymore but if i did <laughs> i would have had one when the news came out that uh the amb- israel ambassador to the united nations condemned george soros for supporting and funding anti-Israel pro-Hamas groups. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Weird. After it's phenomenal. I where we live in, I was just, I, I would just take a deep lung full and exhale slowly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's why this is such a delicious uh, thing. If you think about it without, you know, if you try to divest yourself of the emotions and look at it coldly, I mean, as a, as an intellectual problem, it's, it's one that has um, you've seen in other places. Yes. The danger, the danger for America is that a legitimate issue become the tool of these wackos. That's the danger for America. You don't want the Bolsheviks to be able to control or be able to profit from the serfs' legitimate grievances. You don't want uh, the communist or Marxist uh, terrorist PKK mm-hmm. to become the spokesman of, quote-unquote, the Kurds, particularly if it's abetted by a Western power which has, hasn't the foggiest clue about what that means, all right? And what the implications of that are for regional stability uh, in an area where many people are actually serious Muslims. You don't want to say that people cannot be, um, um, uh, that, that anybody who is anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic, because that would take a lot of people who rebel, say, against uh, the idea of Christian Zionism, which actually, as I understand, it precedes regular Zionism, right? Uh, earlier in the 20th, earlier in the 18th, 19th century, there are many faith traditions that we know of, which uh, have, uh, have been very, very skeptical about, to say it mildly, to be very, very skeptical about the theology that is pushing this notion of Christian Zionism. It's almost seen in some respects as an affront to the new covenant, right? That's a theological argument that people can have. They can dispute that. They should not be, they should not be herded into irrelevance or, uh, uh, something else in order to, um, you know, uh, have a particular political party demonstrate its bona fides to a particular group. Okay. So, I mean, I know I've struggled on this on the Kurdish issue or the Turkish issue. In particular, as a Greek Orthodox uh, Christian, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to hear the other side of the issue, and it's unfortunate. But if you don't listen to the other side of the issue, you're not going to get anywhere. And the irony is that while the Americans on on the Greek Turkish issues often get very very emotional and scream and yell, you know, Mitsotakis was out in uh, or uh, Erdogan visited Mitsotakis in Athens just the other day, <laughs> so they're trying to get past that stuff themselves. And I think we have to understand why that is. And if you're going to understand why that is, you need to be able to think about that a little bit more broadly. Sorry for that long. Just, um, well, I can only no, say that the only thing to do now is to put on our no chumbalone caps <laughs> and and pour coffee into our Chicago Way podcast mugs. I'm looking forward to that. And um, <laughs> adding... Adding a little liqueur, like I would think some anisette liqueur or cognac in the coffee, just like the streets and sand drivers of old in Chicago. Yeah. I I think a nice coffee, uh, Alexandrian coffee liqueur would be perfect for that. But uh, I digress. Oh, very good. But let me, wait, can I just, can I just return to one issue if I may? Because it's about the American thing. Um, Clearly what motivates a lot of young people these days is... Uh, in these, in signing up with these particular protests with respect to Israel, is the that they are fed up with the militarization of American policy. 
Okay. So they are protesting against what they see as establishment equities in this case being um, directed in Israel. And that's an important one because Israel and the United States do have this uniquely close relationship. So it's a uniquely sensitive issue, but it's also uniquely uh, powerful and one that uniquely has the ability to draw people out. The challenge is, I think, if I were a Republican strategist, would be to not let anti-Semites and others uh, who have no nothing but ill will toward Israel take that cadre of people and make it their own, particularly a Republican Party, which under President Trump uh, emerged in precisely as an antidote to the symbol, this traditional Republican thing that brought us Iraq, Iran, or rather Iraq, Libya, you name it, Afghanistan, and all of these sorts of things. Right. So that's what they, as as if they were, if I were a political strategist, I would work on that. But that's not, and that, and that the bottom line here is, from the United States perspective, and this is where I think uh, uh, Austin is correct. They're trying to help Israel as they see it, and they're pointing this out because it's a very, very concerning thing. And if you're if you want to see Israel succeed and you want it to be strong, you have to, you know, it's incumbent upon the United States, as I wrote, to help it avoid the mistakes that we made in 9-11. And we have not done that. They are making those mistakes. And um, it's going to be a very, very rough uh, situation down the road unless there's been some, unless there's some course correction. Nick Cass, uh, Jeff and I hope that you'll come back and also write again for johncassnews.com because, uh, you know, I'm getting some great writers are signing up. You're one of them, obviously. Um, We have, uh, you know, excellent writers and Mm -hmm. got a new one, uh, Dan Proft. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Finally, huh? Writing about writing about uh, the uh, criminal injustice of the of the Cook County property tax system. Fantastic. Saying there are no victims of the system, and I just want everyone to read it, and I want to see you again, and I I guess we'll see each other soon, right? At Christmas at my house. Indeed, we will, and uh, looking forward to. Uh... You know, if I can find any more intel on dibs here and how it's practiced in Romania and uh, the eastern uh, reaches of the Balkans, northeastern Balkans, I'll be happy to see if I can find that out for you. The problem is, of course, getting everyone together at the same time and uh, yeah. driving all over the place. And yeah, I know, yeah. I know that you have uh, obligations, but my yeah. obligations are to you. And yes. to my cast onion soup, and I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to do it properly. Well, I told you, I've told you this before, but every time we go to anywhere where they serve French onion soup, I don't care where it is in Europe. It could be, and we'll do it in Paris too someday. Right. <laughs> my son Nico always says, you know, let's get the French onion soup, and then he'll the first words he'll say is, "This is not as good as Theo John's." Okay, so just <laughs> wise, to let you know, wise young men, wise just man. to let you know, yeah. For Nick Cass, Nicholas Cass. What is the title now? I just have to redo it, Jeff, if you don't mind. What's your title now at Alexandrian Group? Executive Director for International okay. Corporate Affairs at Alexandrian and uh, 
Senior Fellow for European Affairs at the Center for the National Interest in Washington, D.C. That sounds pretty good. And for for Jeff Carlin, executive producer, WGN Radio, my friend, starring on that coffee (laughs) mug, the brilliant coffee mug, the Chicago Way trademark coffee mug. Yeah, eat your heart out, little jealous creature. (laughs) And for me, John Cass, editor-in-chief of John Cass News, your place for a great hat, great coffee, and great common sense. Join us again, won't you, for another edition of the Chicago Way Podcast on WGN+.